It's time for an extra special episode of CMO Combo as we're introducing a new series within the show, Story Masters with Gaston Torn. One of the chief responsibilities of CMOs and marketers is to tell their brand stories. But rather than turning to marketing best practices and what makes a good story, who better to teach us than the greatest storytellers of all time? That's why Gaston and I will be taking a look at the literary theory behind great stories from ancient Greece right through to the modern day and why it's still relevant to how we tell stories today. We have plenty of examples of the theory in action in marketing, along with practical advice on how you can do the same. In the first chapter, we're taking a look at two fundamental aspects of storytelling, defamiliarization and the suspension of disbelief. So it's a, it's a new show that we're doing on CMO Diaries today. Welcome back to CMO Diaries. It's been away for a while, but we're here with Story Masters, um, and I'm here with Gaston Torn, a man who needs very little introduction to uh, for the regular listeners of CMO Combo. But for this new show, Gaston, maybe you could tell us a little bit about who you are and why we're talking about the subject, why it's so important. Yes. So thanks so much, Will, for having me again um, at the CMO Combo. Well, this time it's Story Masters, but still we're going to be discussing one of my favorite topics, which is storytelling. Um, who am I? I think um, I always wanted to become a fiction writer, um, but life took me to, to marketing, which I think is not far away uh, from, from writing and creativity. And I think a lot of those skills that um, I want to apply to, to fiction writing, and I still apply because on the side I'm a writer, um, I can also definitely use for, for marketing. Um, I'm a CMO. I work um, at Appear Here. Appear Here is the world's largest marketplace for retail spaces. Before Appear Here, I was um, working at Google in different marketing roles across different markets, started in Argentina, where I'm from. Um, I also work in Brazil, the US, and then the UK. Um, and I was also CMO at Badoo Group, which now is called Bumble Group. It's a group of dating apps, um, and also at Emma, a DHC company. So a marketeer, a storyteller, um, a bit of both. Awesome, awesome. So the perfect person to be doing this uh, this series with, for sure. Um, so part of this series, we're going to be taking a look at some of the, the traditional or historic literary techniques that people who study literature get pounded over the head over constantly over the ways to tell stories using those techniques. But it's not really something that comes up a lot in marketing circles. Why are we talking about Aristotle? Why are we talking about Coleridge on the show? Why is it important to marketing? Yes, I think, first of all, um, this is something that we started discussing in previous podcasts. Like, I think um, I am a nerd and I love studying literary theory and I love to see how some principles that, you know, have been true about storytelling for like, thousands of years are still true to like the marketing that we do nowadays. I think sometimes we get lost with like new metrics or like new methods of like, you know, perform marketing and like, you know, what's the kind of like new app technology platform. But in the end, marketing is all about influencing someone to do something. If I have to be very, very just concise and have to explain my grandparents who have no clue what is tech and like what is marketing, if I have to tell them what do you do for a living? I am persuading, I'm influencing people to do something. But in order to influence people, I think one thing that definitely humanity has explored for a long time is that human brains are not purely rational. Um, human brains definitely connect much more with stories than facts and data. And I think that's a good thing. Of course, sometimes it's a bad thing because like, we make decisions that are not purely rational. But it's the way that the human brain has worked. There's always an emotional side to the human brain. And I think stories and storytelling is the best way to connect with that side 
of the human brain. And that's why it's so relevant for marketeers, because if you want to influence or persuade something to someone, I think you need to understand how the emotional side of that human brain works. And I think storytelling is the best way to get into it. And, and the principles of storytelling, like we're going to be talking about some very, very old concepts dating back to ancient Greek times. We're going to talk about stuff from Aristotle. We're going to be talking about more recent stuff. Well, more recent relatively. We're going to be talking about stuff from like 19th century authors and 18th century authors. But those principles of storytelling that these people came up with, these lit literary critics came up with, they're still relevant in how we tell stories today in fiction and film. Like the mediums might have changed, but how we tell stories hasn't changed too much and it's the same with marketing like there's all all these new technologies might come out all these new ways of telling stories might come out but the actual principles the building blocks of what makes a great story are going to stay the same yes definitely i think particularly there are like some principles that have been like very true for thousands of years if you read like books like the poetics from from aristotle that are so relevant to the type of stories that we tell nowadays that I think like they definitely tell you like, yes, maybe of course in different cultural contexts, stories are going to take different shapes, but there are some structures that are still relevant to any type of story. And I think there's so much that we can learn, not just marketeers, but actually anyone in business, because I think storytelling is a critical skill, not just in marketing. If you're going to do fundraising, if you're going to explain to the board of investors, uh, if you actually want to get a promotion, like in all those different situations, the storytelling is going to be super useful. And I think, as you said, sometimes we just rely on business sources um, or like business books to understand how to um, persuade or influence. But I feel like the ones that have done this really well for a long time is, is writers and storytellers. We pay to read some of those stories. Like we pay to, for example, watch a Netflix series or we pay to read a novel. Would we do the same with an advert? I think that that's my quality bar. Like, I want people to pay to see the adverts that we produce because that would tell me we're doing something so persuasive that actually people want to hear about it. Um, and I think like that's the quality bar that we need to have. And I think literary critics and in general um, people who have studied the art of storytelling can give us a lot of insights on how to make our stories so compelling that people cannot resist um, watching or reading them. And it, it's the the marketing and brands and advertisements that tell really effective stories that stand the test of time. It's the ones that people go back to and rewatch as great examples. Um, we're going to dig into some of those examples um, as part of this show, um, and we're going to talk about the the literary theories that underpin sort of like the great nature of the stories that they're telling. But we're not just going to throw around theories. We are going to talk about how to practically apply it, how you're applying these concepts in your own work, and how other CMOs can do the same. Yes, definitely. I think um, we're not going to be too nerdy. Don't worry. We're going to be just like using some concepts that I think hopefully it's going to give you like enough language or like some concepts that you can then apply to your own marketing to make your stories much more interesting. And the concepts that I apply on my everyday work, I think like I definitely studied a lot of literary theory. I never thought that I was going to end up in marketing. But then actually when I have been working marketing now for like a few years, um, I find that like those concepts really help to elevate whatever creative I am producing. So definitely we're going to be talking about some literary theory, but then applying that directly to how you can make your marketing creatives much more compelling and much more interesting. So the, uh, the two main topics we're going to talk about on this episode, they're sort of two main fundamentals 
behind storytelling. Do you want to introduce the two concepts uh, for us, Gaston? Yes, one has a very difficult name. Um, it actually comes from like the Russian formalist, um, which was a very important literary theory school um, in the early 20th century. Um, it's called Ostranini, um, which sounds really weird, uh, but actually what it means is estrangement or like defamiliarization. It's basically making the familiar unfamiliar or the unfamiliar familiar. Um, we're gonna be discussing it a bit more, so I'm not gonna disclose too much, but sounds difficult, but it's actually not that difficult. Um, the second concept, a fundamental of any good story, which is tension of disbelief. You need to believe the unreal to be real in order to actually persuade you in the story. If like, you know, something happens in the story and then you're like, oh, that's gonna be like actually not true. Or like, that's not really what could happen. People switch off and like people don't really believe in the story. So there needs to be a suspension of disbelief. You need to actually get so immersed into that world that you believe everything that is going on. Um, I think sometimes marketing stories don't achieve that for different reasons. So we're going to be discussing as well, like what you need to do in order to really create that suspension of disbelief. So Australian sounds difficult, but trust me, it's not going to be that, that complex. And the second one, suspension of disbelief. Let's, let's start with the most complex one then, shall we? Let's start with Australian um, or defamiliarization, which I'm probably going to use because it's a bit easier to say um, as part of our discussion. Um, but yeah, as you said, like started off with uh, Victor Shlovsky in Artist's Device in his essay, um, which was published in 1917. And it's basically how to distinguish poetic or storytelling language from practical language at its essence, isn't it? It's like, how do you set apart a story from an informational guide? And it's how you present those ideas in a new way to the audience in a way that they think about things differently, I suppose is a good way of putting it. Exactly. I think, I think what Australia does is like, it really captures people's attention. Um, and then that's what marketing tries to do as well, right? I think our everyday lives sometimes can be quite monotonous and repetitive. And I think what, what this literary resource or technique does is just like makes the familiar unfamiliar. It kind of like, in a way presents a new um, way of looking at things that are like very familiar or vice versa, something that is like incredibly unfamiliar, it makes it look like super familiar. And then you're like, oh God, what, what is this all about? Like, it's kind of like actually um, making something that would look like completely unreal possible, like potentially actually something that you could encounter in your everyday life. And I think it's, I mean, like the, probably one of the reasons is like, to be honest, I think everyday life can be quite monotonous and quite boring. And I think like in order to spice it up, you do need to look at things like in an unfamiliar way. Um, I think one of my favorite examples, like I am from Latin America. So of course I love magical realism. Magical realism is um, one of the most interesting, of course I'm biased, I'm from Latin America, but one of the most interesting um, um, literary kind of schools, I think in, in the 20th century. What it tries to do is just like, really in a way not not it's not science fiction at all it's just like bringing some magical elements to reality um it's just like telling the story that it could be real but with some magical elements that makes it a bit like distorted and you're not really sure what's going on and i think like one example from for example like one of the most important books of that that um literary school is 100 years of solitude from garcia marquez um uh, an amazing novel that i recommend every marketeer to read it's like i think like probably one of the best examples of how to tell a really, really compelling story. One thing that Garcia Marquez does is uses familiar elements in a very unfamiliar way. So for example, in this story, at some point, it starts to rain. 
but it doesn't stop raining for five years. So there's a rain that actually lasts five years. And it's it's really weird because like, imagine like if you actually live in a world where like rain doesn't stop for five years, but at the same time, it's not completely impossible. So it makes something that is very familiar like rain affect everyday life in a really, really strange um, way. So there's so many other examples. I think like another amazing, talking about rain, like one movie I love that uses um, a very similar um, resource is Magnolia. Um, again, starts to rain, but it doesn't rain water. It actually starts raining frogs. So you have a world where like, rather than you know, having rain that comes out, like that is actually um, just water what we're used to, suddenly you have frogs, like for example, like um, breaking houses or cars or like different things because it's very unfamiliar for what we're used to. So that's what Australian is in a nutshell. It's like just some, making something that is quite common, quite usual, look unfamiliar because that captures people's attention. That actually makes people realize like, wow, the world I live in is not that common. It's actually quite uncommon. And I think it brings back that magic um, to everyday life. And it's not just strangeness or differences for the sake of differences, uh, particularly with magical realism, like the, the alterations they make to reality are about holding up a mirror to reality to make you think about your current reality differently. Um, I think a great example from the world of advertising marketing is probably car adverts. Um, like cars themselves are machines, they're mechanical, they're made of metal, they've got all these stuff inside of it. But when you see cars advertised on television, they don't talk about like, this is where all the screws are, this is where you'll sit. They talk about the feeling that comes with being in the car. They talk about the destinations you can go to. They talk about like the, the way that this car will transform your world in, in a certain way. Um, it's not about just the practicalities of the object. It's about the potential and the new way of looking at the world provided by, that, um, by the car. Completely. Yes, I think, how, how would you apply Australian media to, to marketing story? I think marketing stories cannot just illustrate what the product does. Like they need to elevate the product experience. And I think that's exactly what you're saying about car adverts. I think any marketing advert that just illustrates, shows in very practical terms what a product does, is going to have some effectiveness, but at the same time, it's not going to build the brand. It's not going to tell a compelling story about the brand. I think because, again, going back to this principle about Australian E and like how defamiliarization really gets people attention. If you're just telling something that is quite practical, like just shows the product and how it works, it's going to be quite dull. Like people are going to get bored. But if you defamiliarize it, if you actually elevate it a bit and you show that experience, it captures people's imagination. And I think it's going to be just a much stronger emotional connection to that product. So what are some actual real world examples of this in practice? I mentioned car adverts, but let's talk about like some specific campaigns or brands that are doing this really well. One of my favorite ones um, is from Google Analytics, um, a product that I think I'm sure like a lot of marketers use on their everyday lives and they're probably a bit bored of using just Google Analytics and like all the metrics and bounce rates and conversion rates. Um, and I, I, I choose this example because I say like, Australian is about defamiliarizing the everyday life. And I think for marketeers, like Google Analytics is our everyday life. We're using it all the time. It's so common. But what this campaign does, it's called Google Analytics in real life. And it was one of the first campaigns from, from Google Analytics. It defamiliarizes some of the metrics and puts them in real life. 
So for example, a metric like bounce rate. What would bounce rate mean if you actually are in shock? Um, so it actually uses like some almost like parallels of like what would happen if some of those metrics actually happen in a real store. And I think it makes it actually so visible that a lot of our online experiences are just like really bad. Like for example, the checkout, um, when you're trying to like check out on a website and it asks you 10,000 like different pieces of information. And then when you actually click on like buy, it asks you like a new piece of information and sorry, now the connection is not working. And all those things that, you know, we have to go through when we buy something online brings all those elements to a real interaction in a cashier in a supermarket. And it makes it really funny, but at the same time, it really brings to light how bad our online checkout experiences are. Um, so I think like that's that's one of my favorite examples, just because I think sometimes Google Analytics can be quite like dry as a product. But when you when you see this campaign, you start to understand how some of those metrics they have a massive impact on the customer experience. And I think they do that like that campaign just by defamiliarizing using some of those online metrics in a real interaction, in an interaction in a shop. And I think like by doing that really captures your attention and really makes you aware of like what's maybe going wrong on your online customer experience. Hume is probably a really good way of thinking about this in terms of uh, easy ways that you can play. I know being funny is quite a difficult thing, but if you think about things in terms of parody or satire, they're probably a really great way of thinking about um, how to apply um, defamiliarization in a practical way. Completely. Yes, I think in general, um, most stories don't have just a literary kind of like, or a literal um, way of telling a story. I think like usually there is some level of like irony or some level of metaphor that I think makes the, the story a bit more interesting. I think if we are literal, usually we're gonna be on the practical level. And I think people kind of like, in a way switch off because it's almost like, well, you're just telling me like the facts but you're not involving me in the story. I think one of the most beautiful like parts of like the poetics from, from Aristotle, what he says is like, whenever it comes to an argument, it, let's say you have like, you know, a premise and another premise and then a conclusion. If you tell people directly the conclusion and you let them infer the premises, they're gonna be much more interested in your conclusion. And they're going to be much more interested in whatever you have to say because they're going to feel smart. They're going to be like, oh, you're saying that because I'm inferring that that's your premise. But if you go the logical way, you just go like premise A, premise B, then conclusion, it's a bit boring because it's almost like you're being a bit patronizing. You're just being like, you know, a very kind of like old school teacher that's like, just like giving all the different facts before I give you the conclusion, which is probably what more like product-led just acts do. It's like, I give you all the premises, then you should buy this. But if you start the other way around, if you actually start with the conclusion, if you elevate that story, if you have not a literal kind of like tone, but a bit more metaphoric, or um, you use some level of irony, I think it just makes people much more compelled. Um, and also it makes them feel smart because I think that's what irony does. It's like, we are being complicit about something that only you and I know. And that makes me feel closer to you, but it also makes me feel smart because I kind of infer what you were trying to, to say. 
I think a great example of that, it's one of my favorite adverts of all time, is the, the Guinness Surfer advert, where it's all about this surfer in Hawaii waiting for his entire life for the perfect wave to come along. And he hits the wave, and there's all these dramatic drums going, pounding, the waves are crashing. And at the end, it just cuts to a pint of Guinness, and good things come to those who wait. At no point does it say anything as simple as, drink Guinness, it's almost as good as catching the best wave of your entire life, that you'll achieve the same sense of victory. But it allows the viewer to draw its own connections between the story that's going on, the metaphor that's being told through the Guinness Surfer ad. And it allows people who like Guinness, people who know that you have to wait for the, the pint to settle and stuff like that, to recognize those elements, to recognize that anticipation on their own, on their own speed. And that builds a bit more of a emotional connection between you and the advert and the product itself um so yeah if you haven't seen the advert check it out just google guinness surfer ad it's one of my favorites of all time nice i haven't watched it so i've been definitely i'm very very curious to see it oh, it's, it's fantastic it's one of the reasons i got into marketing to begin with because i wanted to be creating stuff like that but again it tells a really really effective story that is unfamiliar like I, I doubt there's a lot of crossover between hawaiian surfers and Guinness and Guinness drinkers, particularly in the UK, where the advert was uh, shown first. But you're able to draw this connection between these two unfamiliar scenarios in a way that makes sense at the same time. And I think that's a really, really good application of Austrian or defamiliarization in a marketing uh, in a marketing space. But let's talk about how you're applying these principles. Let's talk about some of the examples that you're doing. Yes, I think one, one campaign that uh, we're already discussing in one of our previous podcasts is Save the Street. Um, this is a campaign that I led um, during the pandemic, especially um, in the first lockdown. Um, so for, for those of you who don't know up here, what we do is like we connect uh, mostly independent brands and independent stores with spaces to make their ideas happen. And of course, during the pandemic, what we saw is that a lot of these independent brands and independent stores were like really, really struggling. Um, Big retailers got a lot of help from government, but independent retailers didn't. Um, and actually it was quite interesting because like some of those big retailers even um, returned money back to the government because they were like, we don't need this like support. But it's independent retailers were the ones like who needed it the most. And I think like they are like definitely like, you know, some of the most important elements that build a community, a local community. Um, so what happened during that time is like, we said like, look, we are, supporting this community, we need to really bring their demands back to the government. And I think we really need to act as a voice of independent retailers. So we started working on this campaign called Save the Street. I had a petition to the government um, and we got actually a lot of like support out of it. I think particularly um, when it comes to um, business rates, I think like there was a lot of support from government. Um, the, the Minister of Small Business in the UK mentioned the Save the Street campaign um, when he announced like new measures for um, independent retailers. So it was a very successful way of like supporting uh, independent retailers to survive during the pandemic. But when it comes to actually like the campaign creatives, we didn't go fully like political manifesto. Um, we actually tried to think about how we can defamiliarize um, some of these communications and how we can actually make them much more interesting and compelling for someone who perhaps doesn't care about independent stores or who doesn't care about um, high streets as much as we do. So we worked with a poet uh, called Charlie Cox um, to create a poem uh, for our high streets. 
Um, and it was a really good way of defamiliarizing how we interact with high streets and what kind of meaning high streets have for people all across the country. Um, so I think you can watch it online if you go to Save a Street Poem um, on, on YouTube, um, you can see it. But I feel like some favorite lines from that uh, poem talks about, for example, like the baristas that know your name before you say hello, um, which I think is a quite beautiful way of saying like how we build community and how we build relationships in those high streets. And for a lot of people actually that we thought to, um, the high street is the only social interaction they have. And when they were closed, they really, really struggle with mental health because of the lack of um, interactions in the high street. There is actually a really good research from Public Health England that shows the impact on, on mental health um, related to like poor high streets. Um, another favorite line talks about the high streets and the low ties. And it talks about basically how um, there is a relationship between um, the high streets kind of like creating community but at the same time when they're like low and they're like removed uh, from everyday life is the same as when like basically the sea um, kind of like shows all the all the garbage in a way that is like in the sea. Um, so there were like some beautiful moments in that poem that I think they were not typical for a political campaign but in the end I think what they did um, like those lines and those poems I think was like defamiliarizing um, something and bringing new attention to why high streets are so important um, to build community. Sure, and poetry in, in essence is an excellent form of defamiliarization. It, it requires you to think about things in different ways. I mean, great quote from Aristotle, poetic language must be strange and wonderful. And I think that's a perfect way of summing up why defamiliarization is so important. Because um, yeah, it highlights what is wonderful about the everyday. Um, like the high street is a great example of that. I think a lot of people took it for for granted uh, prior to the pandemic, and now people are ready to return to the high street. They're ready to start enjoying like these independent real re retailers that they they used to enjoy. So there has to be some kind of campaign to keep them around, kind of thing, and that's what the Save the Street um, campaign was all about. Um, so. Ostrinenny, I'm, I'm, I keep struggling with this. I know, I know. Um, Ostrinenny, is there anything else that we want to talk about in terms of how to apply it in a marketing concept before we move on to willing suspension of disbelief? I think, particularly in the times we're living, um, reality looks a bit unfamiliar. Um, so sometimes it's actually not really going into the unfamiliar territory, but it's more making the unfamiliar familiar as well. Um, so think about, in the end, it's like how we can capture people's attention. And I think this is a really interesting resource that, that you can use. I think one of my favorite campaigns actually from Mumble um, during lockdown, what they did is like, they pick up just like very common um, phrases that we use in dating, but they, they kind of like, in a way, apply them to a context that is very unfamiliar, which is like lockdown, right? So a very common, um, phrase that we would use in, in dating is like your house or mine. Uh, but rather than using your house or mine because people couldn't go to each other's houses, um, they did a billboard that was like your park or mine. Dating got weird, um, Bumble. And like, that was another beautiful example of using Australianese, right? In, 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 in an unfamiliar world, which is I think like what we're living at the moment, sometimes actually making the unfamiliar familiar is perhaps a really, really good resource as well. So. What's training me, I think it's like such a useful principle. I use it all the time, I review creatives, but I think 
it doesn't just mean making the familiar and familiar. Sometimes in a really, really strange world that I think we're all living at the moment, maybe making the unfamiliar familiar, it's also a really interesting creative resource to use. Excellent, excellent. So on to the next one, willing suspension of disbelief. So this is a phrase coined by one of my favorite poets of all time, Samuel Taylor Coleridge in um, Biographia Literaria, which sounds very, very high-minded and fancy because that's what Coleridge thought like. Um, but basically, it's a, it's a term that I think that gets thrown around a lot without people fully understanding it. So let, let's work on like what is the actual definition of willing suspension of disbelief. I think, Will, I'm going to leave this one to you. I already explained it. So it's always <laughs> like a lot of pressure. So like you're going to explain Pressure on me. Pressure on me. So basically, it's around... I'd say it's probably to do with sort of like the being able to notice small differences in a big way that don't fit the inherent logic of the story. An example of this would be an animal suddenly speaking that hadn't spoke that when the story hadn't established that animals could speak in the story. Like you've got all these human characters and suddenly a random cat pops up and now out of nowhere and starts talking to the characters. If you haven't established any reason behind why that cat can talk, it can pull people out of the story if you've established that animals can talk right from the beginning an example of that would be say fantastic mr fox by roald dahl it establishes right at the beginning that animals have this society they speak to each other they act pretty similar to humans if they had normal foxes at the beginning that suddenly started acting like humans halfway through the story you'd be pulled right out of it and you wouldn't understand what's going on and how this can apply in um sort of marketing terms i think the best way to think about it is consistency within the brand within the story that you're telling like if you don't have some kind of inherent logic to the brand to the stories the experience that the customer is having they'll notice all these little details all these little problems and it's going to pull them out of their connection with the brand and the story that you're trying to tell so that's my perception of it in a nutshell gaston thoughts i think completely uh what you're saying is basically look if something looks like two like weird or like too unreal, like people are gonna notice it and they're gonna like switch off and they're gonna be like, what? Like, you know, this doesn't make any sense. So you wanna make sure like you're building a world in whatever communication you're building that seems real. Of course, it's not gonna be real because it's a story, but it needs to seem real. And that doesn't mean that you cannot use some magical elements, but the magical elements or like the fictional elements or science fiction or whatever, like kind of like, you know, weirdness that you apply to the story needs to be believable in the story. Um, just maybe one example that doesn't show this, um, just to like make it very practical. I think like a lot of like what we call in marketing product placements do it in a really, really bad way. Um, suddenly you're watching like, for example, like a recent one, like the, the new um, film or like the new series of like Sex and the City that I didn't watch, but everyone was talking about like the Peloton's product placement and how bad it was because suddenly like, I think it was Mr. Big. I don't know, I, I never watched the, the series, but I, I saw all the news yeah. about how like suddenly like Mr. Big was like, just like, you know, training and then suddenly died with like a Peloton, right? Um, and I think like it's just one example. I, I don't want to like um, talk negatively about Peloton because I think it helped a lot of people to um, go through the pandemic. But I think like a lot of those product placements are just like so unbelievable that people like immediately are like, oh God, like actually this was all a fictional story. I'm not really into the story anymore. Like I'm just actually now questioning like what's actually the whole series a way of like 
making money out of like these product placements rather than actually telling me a story that is very compelling. Um, so I think product placements are like a very bad example of like what happens when you actually don't follow the suspension of disbelief principle. Um, you can do a product placement in a really organic and natural way. And I think like if you do it, you're gonna be suspending that kind of feeling of disbelief. Uh, but I would say most of them get it wrong. The actual technical term of like what happens um, when you break that suspension of disbelief, it's called Deus Ex Machina. And I'm sorry to bring all the <laughs> complex terms, but Deus Ex Machina, which sounds like really, really weird, it, it actually comes from like originally, like in a lot of like theatrical plays and a lot of like stories. Whenever like the you know the writer didn't know how to finish the story, basically suddenly they like God, which it's basically Deus, like in, in Latin, God came and like finished everything, right? Like, you know, suddenly like it was such a like, you know, complex situation that the only way the writer could get out of that mess was, was with like God coming and like, I don't know, killing everyone, right? <laughs> and then you was like, that's weird. Like, you know, what happened? Why suddenly God is now coming and like killing everyone? Like, you know, that, that came out of nowhere, right? Where was he earlier when all the mess was going on in the first place? Like, yeah. It's like, yeah, I mean, like the Bible, I'm sure it like, has a lot of examples of those, right? Like, um, yeah, I feel like it's a pretty like simplistic story as well, like the Bible. But I feel like I mean, what is what is interesting is like definitely those ex machina has its roots on this principle, which I think is something that I mean, everyone who tells a story sometimes gets it wrong, right? And sometimes it's going to have to use like these like out of nowhere elements that make the audience question like. Oh god, that was actually a story. Like that was actually not something that I can feel fully, fully immersed into. And I think that this is important because you want your audience to be fully immersed into your story. You want them to be so connected, so into it. Um, it's almost like the metaverse, right? Like, um, which I think mean, nobody gets really what is metaverse, but I feel like in the end, it's like that immersive element, right? It's like really being so immersed into this world that in a way, if something like some like happens. You're gonna start questioning, like, was this even real? Like, imagine if you're like in the metaverse with like those kind of like meta glasses, and then suddenly there's like a technical glitch. You're like, oh god, all of that was suddenly not real. And I think like that's what you're trying to do um, to avoid when when you tell a story. And I think like product placements in marketing are like just probably one of the examples that get it wrong because it's usually like you know someone is having fun and like maybe like they are like you know on a discussion and then suddenly it's like but have you thought about like drinking beer X? And like, I'm like, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense for the story. Um, it's just like so out of nowhere uh, that people are going to like start questioning the whole world that you're building in that story. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think product placements and particularly sort of influencer endorsements are a great example of that. Like seeing multi-billionaires um, advertising cleaning products that they've never used in their entire lives seeing very very wealthy people talking about using their own like bought in the box hair dyeing techniques when they clearly have a huge team of stylists around it it's those kinds of inconsistencies that people will pick up on and I think people are waking up to more and more now that they're more exposed to sort of like the information around these people like particularly with influencers I'm not going to name any particular names in this case but yeah, there's a lot of examples out there. Um, but yeah, that, I think as well, um, like you can still have like 
twists and turns when it comes to the story that you want to tell like that's what keeps things interesting but those twists have to be logical within the story like an example of this, this is this quite a dark example i suppose but like say you've got a character who's walking down the street and suddenly they get hit by a car that makes sense within the logic of the world they live in because we live in a world with cars and we know that cars exist and we know that people do get hit by cars but if an alien suddenly swoops out of nowhere and zaps that person and we haven't established that aliens exist at all that is breaking the suspension of disbelief it's bringing in logic from elsewhere that doesn't fit within the logic that you've established within the story and with the within the logic of the brand that you're trying to sell so going back to sort of like the cleaning products example you want people who actually seem like they would be using those products to be advertising those products you don't want people who are don't know how to use your product or have never even seen that product stepping up and saying this is great you should use it when there's no evidence there's no logical consistency to why they would be using that product in the first place completely yes and i feel like you're using a concept that marketeers love which is consistency right mm -hmm. i feel like we love to say brands need to be consistent um and i actually wrote an op-ed around consistency um i wrote it for app week um because I got a bit bored of the word consistency. Um, it was a time where like basically every single idea I wanted to present to um, my like my team or like you know um, marketing leadership when I was working in corporate, it was always like that's not consistent. And I was like, God, like everyone is using the word consistency to actually not do exciting work. And I think like it kind of like went into circles. Like for me, I think like I was like. I hate consistency. I don't think consistency is the you know, way to go. But then actually I realized like, yes, consistency is super important. And as you said, it's very important, but not for the reasons that most marketeers believe consistency is important. I think a lot of people think that consistency means repetition. Um, so you will get this in corporate, especially like if you work for a corporate brand, um, whenever you try to spice up a bit the language or like change a few things, you're going to be told like no that's not consistent like we always use the same words like this has to be this and then you're like really like we're sounding a bit robotic like we're always using the same exact words um so what i argue in that op-ed is like consistency doesn't mean repetition but consistency is actually essential um to marketing but not to basically like avoid repetition what consistency does it builds a world where like the brand feels authentic. Um, so I don't think you need to be consistent when it comes to the actual language you use. What you need to be consistent is with the values that your brand stands for. And I think that's quite different. Like, for example, if you're a brand like Bumble that you stand for gender equality, you don't need to use always the same words to express gender equality, but definitely you need to be consistent with that value. Um, and I think it's the way that actually we interact with other human beings. I think like Martin has a lot to do also with human psychology. And I think um, that consistency builds trust, but it's the same as in any human relationship. If, if you have a friend that is always repeating the same words all the time, you're going to think like, oh my God, my friend's a robot. Like it's not actually a human being. So that's the same with a brand. If the brand is using the same language all the time, you're going to feel like, oh my God, it's like such a corporate, like such a role, which is actually something that we tend to say even about brands. Like they always use the same words. Whereas in a human relationship, what you expect when, when it comes to consistency is the person just being authentic and like actually 
hold the same values. If someone once day says X and then you know the next day says the opposite, you're not gonna trust that person because you're like, where, where do they stand actually? Like, of course, like values can evolve over time. But if one day you say, I am all pro X, and then the next day you say, I'm not against that, it makes you wonder, like, can I trust this person? And it's the same with brands. I think like consistency means making sure that you stand for some values and actually you stay consistent uh, to those values. Um, that's what we need to focus on. Authenticity is a great way of talking about it, particularly in the day we live in where lots of co lots of companies and lots of brands out there saying that they support certain values, certain things in the world, certain societal movements, and then their actual actions don't match up with that. An example for that would be um, oil companies that claim to be doing a lot of work for renewable energy when they're still not making any big steps towards that. Another example would be companies that cover their brand in lots of pride imagery during pride month and then donate money to anti-lgbtqa politicians um so yeah that kind of authenticity um breaking that ruins the sp suspension of disbelief like you've believed initially that these these brands stand for certain values and they're doing certain things once you find out they're not doing those things they're not being authentic about these values they're presenting you've broken that trust you've broken that suspension of disbelief about what this this person or this audience thinks about your brand yeah and maybe they're using a positive example like i think one of the best examples of brand consistency is, is recently patagonia right of like course. really yeah. Yeah. the company a way to to help fight you know climate change that's an example for me of consistency it's not repeating the same words i don't even care about like what words like patagonia uses like in every single ad what i care about is that consistently they are staying true to the same values that they have defended from day one. And it's definitely not repetition as well, because it's a completely unprecedented move by the, owner, the founder of Patagonia. Like no billionaire has given away this much amount of their company before in this way before. So it's a completely new thing, but is consistent and authentic with the values that they've been presenting previously. So that doesn't break the suspension of disbelief. Maybe if the CEO of Shell decided to give away the entire company to um, to um save the planet that would maybe break my suspension of disbelief in a good way of course because that'd be a really nice thing to see but that's just not consistent to their actions and to what they've been doing as a company previously whereas what patagonia has done is very consistent with what they've been doing so that fits within sort of that logical reality that they've created around the brand completely yes and i think um Hopefully we're going to see this also with all companies, um, but definitely like, you know, if that happens, like people would even say like, oh my God, that's just like fiction. It will never happen. So it tells you that exactly yeah. good fiction doesn't look like fiction. Like good fiction makes you believe in the world so much that you don't even think it's fiction. Um, you, you, you need to make sure that you build a world that is so real that people will live in it and get so immersed into it that they even start questioning, is this fiction or is this real? I think Black Mirror is another example that was amazing. I, um, I think Black Mirror, everyone went away of it and they were like traumatized for like the rest of like their existence because it was like, oh, actually this is quite real. Like this is, this is not fiction. Like what, what Black Mirror is showing is just like, quite like something that, you know, it could be very, very, very uh, true and very real um, with like what's going on in the world now and, and with technology. For sure, for sure. Um, but that's not to say that you can't have sort of a logical reality in sort of 
high concept stuff, stuff like sci-fi and fantasy. You can tell those stories. You can have that that kind of storytelling be a part of your brand, so long as it's consistent. An example would be, say, in Star Wars, we've established that people can do certain things with the Force. They can do certain things like influence people's minds and stuff like that. As soon as a character starts breaking out a completely new power, oh, the fans get up and uproar. They're very upset. And that's because it's broken their logical consistency. Even though it's a fictional thing, even though it's based on stuff that doesn't exist in our reality, it's bre- breaking the logical consistency that's been established by the, the, by the, um, by the story. And it's the same with brands as well. Brands, at the end of the day, aren't a real physical thing you can touch. You have to buy into a brand in order to recognize it as something that's valuable. And you have to have that consistency. You have to have that logical reality behind the brand in order to keep that buy-in consistent throughout your entire relationship with the brand. A hundred percent. Excellent. Excellent. So how are you applying these concepts in your own role as a CMO? Like, are there any good examples that we can pick apart? I think particularly when, when I tell customer stories, I think some of our customers that appear here, they have such amazing stories. Sometimes I'm like, oh my God, it's like, it's even like unreal, like, you know, what they went through and like, you know, how they managed to achieve what they achieved. I think like in my storytelling, what I try to do is make sure like I don't put the tension too much on things that are like so, um, like just like, you know, so unreal or like so difficult um, that would make um, the viewer think like, this is unbelievable. This is not really something that could happen. Just one recent example like we had an amazing customer he's called steve um fortunately steve like um you know he he lived in south london and he had some difficult like personal moments and like he he became homeless at the age of 16. um but then by that experience he actually learned how to cook um using youtube so he was not um like enjoying, of course, like the, the food that he was getting in hostels. So he learned how to cook um, by watching YouTube videos. Um, from there, he became the chef of um, some amazing restaurants. He even got to um, become the chef of um, a Michelin star restaurant um, on the coast of England. Um, he became one of like the master chefs of like BBC Two, um, Chef Brigade. And then he, his dream was always to launch his own restaurant, but I think a lot of landlords were not giving that opportunity to him because of like lack of maybe economic resources. Um, and I appear here because we are all about like giving economic opportunity and giving opportunities to people who we serve and who have great ideas. Um, we help him launch his restaurant, his first restaurant in South London, um, where, where you know he's from. Um, that story in itself, it's a bit like almost unreal, right? Like when you like look at it and you're like, what like how did he go from like here to here it's just like it's such an amazing story and i mean like steve is such an amazing human being that um it it almost like makes it hard to believe that you know someone like really could go from nowhere to such an exciting place in life and i think it's so inspiring the story but when i was telling the story i was always trying to focus on the fact that he's a restaurateur i've been like really making sure like he's a chef and he was always a chef um of course he went through some hardship in his life but at the core of like what he enjoys and what he does has always been food. Um, and I think that was really, really important to make sure like there was that suspension of disbelief, right? Because I think if you go for a journey that is just like too unreal and like these like, you know, say from like nowhere to like the opposite place, 
but there's nothing in that original place that actually can explain where the story is going, I think people will start questioning um, the reality of that story. So for me to tell that story, which is called Sharp and Swim, you can find it on YouTube as well if you search appear here, Sharp and Swim, or you can actually go to the restaurant as well if you're in London, it's in that four. It's an amazing seafood restaurant. Um, but I think like in that story, I have always been very conscious of making sure like the journey was real and it felt authentic to a character. Steve was always a chef. He went through some hardship that made him unfortunately become homeless, but at the heart of like what he loves has always been food. Yeah, so it's not like he's just, I don't want to say just a homeless person, but this is how people could possibly perceive it. Like he's not just a homeless person who turned around one day and said, I want to open a restaurant. There is this narrative behind his motivations to open the restaurant, this narrative behind how he got to this place, how he built himself up. So it's not just like he's turned around and become this amazing chef out of nowhere. Like there is this kind of logical consistency to this path that he's taken to the story that you're telling um, with him, with um, a peer here. Completely, yes. And I think it's, it's really important that um, you build that connection because I think as an audience, what you need to live with is thinking like, we can all be Steve. And I think like, a great part of like the lack of empathy with um, people who who go through like really hard moments has to do with like not feeling that empathy and I feel like making sure that you know you build that early on there's a really good example from a Google search campaign um, it's actually around like Google Google Translate rather than Google search um, and it tells a story of a guy who who was in Iraq and um, he he left Iraq during the war to move to America. Uh, like he really struggled with like um, English as a language and how he learned English was using Google Translate. Um, but what I love about the story is that when he starts, it basically already builds that empathy by you know the character saying like, "I am from Iraq, and whenever I say Iraq, people think about bombs and like war." And it makes me laugh because actually my memories of Iraq are amazing. Like I used to have endless summers in Iraq. I used to have the most amazing food, the best life ever. But suddenly all of that changed when the war started. And I think that's a really, really good resource in that story because again, it makes you like relate to that character. And you're like, God, that actually can happen also in my country. Like it's not just Iraq that we're so used to watching on the news. Like it's a country at war. Any country suddenly can have an experience like the ones that you know people in Iraq unfortunately um, have to, to go through. I think that's why it's important in any story to kind of show how you get to the destination, how you get to a certain place. Like, and that's a big part of suspension of disbelief and being able to see see the logic of like the building blocks that have got to a certain place that have built up to a certain place. Um, so. It feels a little bit that we're talking about two quite different concepts today that seem almost like antithetical to each other, but they're, they're not, are they? You can have defamiliarization and this sort of logical consistency within the story at the same time, right? I think both are super important. I think you need to defamiliarize, but make that defamiliarization look familiar. I think in the end, it's that movement of like making the unfamiliar familiar or the familiar and familiar in a believable way that makes the stories really compelling and actually makes you turn the page, makes you want to watch the next episode because it is a bit unfamiliar, but at the same time, I can't believe it. Gaston, so you cut out for a little bit there. So can we go from 
um, the top of what you were saying there. Um, I think we would start with, where were we? It was, um, yeah, you can have Ostrineni and defamiliarization in the same place. So if we start at the top there, because um, you cut out for a little bit there. Um, so, yeah. Sure. So I think like both Ostrineni and suspension of this two leave are incredibly important. And I think they're not um, opposite ways of telling a story. Actually, Ostrineni, what it does, it makes the unfamiliar look so familiar that you stop believing that, you know, oh, that can actually happen. It's not like something that is so uh, strange that could never happen. But also when you make the, the familiar unfamiliar, you do it in a way that is believable, that people are, can actually feel like that, that could actually happen. Like, you know, the example from Black Mirror, right? So um, that movement between like familiar, unfamiliar, and making sure that, you know, the world we're building is in the end the same movement that makes stories so compelling and actually makes us want to watch them. Because I think in the end, we all try to like hear these stories and we tell us the stories because we want to learn something about our lives and you know how we are, um, you know, how we can actually deal with the complexity of the world. Um, so if it's so far-fetched that actually it doesn't look like real, or like we don't feel like we can learn anything about it, uh, we stop probably watching. Um, so you want to make sure like there is something that people can relate to um, and it seems real. Excellent. So Gaston, uh, there's loads more to explore on the subject, I know, but hopefully this has been a nice little introduction to our listeners on these concepts. Um, next episode, we're going to be talking more about sort of like the the building blocks of a story. How do you actually go about constructing a story? So we're going to dig into stuff like four-act structure, um, the importance of uh, change within a story, what an actual scene means within a story, which I'm very excited about as well. So Gaston, is there anything else that you want to pick up from those things? Just a little preview for what we're going to be talking about in the next episode. So there's more to come. I think a lot of more tools to use. Um, I think from today, if you can take something out of this, it's like, Make sure when, when you review a story, when you review a marketing creative, is there something unfamiliar that can make people like really, really much more interested in like understanding what's going on in the story? But at the same time, are you telling a story that is believable? I think like always think about those two elements. Those are two tools that now you can use to review your creatives. Next time, we're going to be reviewing even more tools. Um, the, the most important um, units of any story is a scene. So I'm very, very excited to talk about that. Uh, there's also going to be um, other elements about like what really makes a great story. So tools that, and techniques that you can use um, to really elevate the quality of um, the stories you're telling. Excellent. I'm very excited to have that conversation with you, Gaston. I'm sure our audience will be looking forward to it too. Um, we'll be back soon with another Story Masters with CMO Diaries, uh, with Gaston Torn, of course. Um, I hope you can join us again. Thank you so much, Bill. Like what you heard from this CMO combo? Make sure you hit that subscribe button and leave a rating so the whole world knows how great it was.